Now, there's in popular imagination in the Christian world, in the modern American Christian world anyways, heaven is this place we're going to one day fly away to and we'll leave this burning orb of a planet behind and go off to uh, you know the, this wonderful place filled with glory and grace. Uh, but uh, as the New Testament describes heaven, it's not so much a place we're going to fly away to as much as it is right here and right now. It's a it's a dynamic or realm that's coming down to earth. That's why Jesus, the King of Heaven, came from came down to earth and announced the kingdom of heaven is has come. Repent and believe the good news. And as Jesus described Christian mission and the Christian life, it wasn't so much about getting ready to blast off into the netherworld to to some heaven that's far, far away, but it's about bringing the values and the power and the presence of the kingdom of heaven right here and right now. And even Christian prayer, really in its essence, is about bringing heaven down to earth. What does he say in Christian prayer? Pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so the hope of the Christian, the goal of the Christian, the goal of of prayer and and uh, the progress of the work of God is the is is all about bringing heaven and the values of heaven and the power of heaven down to earth and the manifesto of this really is the Sermon on the Mount the most famous sermon ever preached in, in Matthew chapter 5 6 and 7 when Jesus stands up and he, he announces he describes what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like, and he starts with these words, these really kind of enigmatic phrases that you know they, they kind of make you feel warm inside, but it's hard to know exactly what he's talking about. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, and he kind of goes through this this catalog of of characteristics of the blessed, and so that's where I want to start. But uh, just a few preliminary remarks. First, um, let me just say, you know, for for people who are Bible students and, and Bible communicators, one of the most frustrating words in the whole Bible is this word blessing. Uh, because, you know, blessing, that, that's what you say to someone when they sneeze, right? You say, bless you. And whatever that means, or why, whyever we do that, I don't know, but you got to say it, right? And, um, or, you know, you sit down to eat and someone says, well, who's going to say the blessing? And, uh, you know, they mean the little prayer, for, prayer before you eat. Or, uh, you know, you think of blessing as something your, your, uh, your grandma used to bestow upon you when you visit her. But, and that, that the problem is, in the English language, that word has been just so trivialized and marginalized and, and, and made kind of inconsequential, while the reality is that from the Bible's perspective, it's actually the theme of the whole Bible, in a sense. Not in a sense. It is. I could say it is the theme of the whole Bible. The theme of the whole Bible is how is God going to bring, bring the blessing to his people, bring the blessing to earth. You know, when God calls Abraham, what does he say? I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and all nations will be blessed through you. You know, the essence of what God had to offer Abraham was the blessing. And, and this theme kind of runs through runs through the whole, the whole Bible, uh, you know, the, the theme of the Bible is the restoration of the blessing to, 
God's people. And the covenant, we talk about the covenant. The covenant's all about the way of experiencing God's blessing. Uh, you know, and that's why Jesus came. And so, so uh, you know, different scholars have, have, and different Bible teachers have, have toyed with different ways to translate this word. Some people say, well, well, let's, or in the Beatitudes say, let, let's, instead of saying blessing, let's say happy, you know, and, uh, and uh, so we, we could call it the, uh, someone wrote a book called, about the Beatitudes entitled, The Be Happy Attitudes, and, uh, but, but it doesn't, it kind of breaks down, because it's like, well, happy are the poor, happy are those who mourn, and, you know, right there, kind of, it, it doesn't work anymore. How, how can we say happy are, are those who mourn? And so someone else said, maybe a way to translate it is, is congratulations, like, uh, you know, congratulations to the poor, congratulations to those who mourn, congratulations to the meek, congratulations to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But that doesn't really work either because it, it's not a set of characteristics that lend themselves to congratulations. And then I, I recently heard Tim, Tim Keller talking about this, and he was kind of saying, saying the same thing, that it's hard to translate this word in a way that captures its meaning. He says, well, maybe for modern Americans, the way to translate it is to call is to say successful. So successful are the poor. Successful are those who mourn. Successful are the meek. Successful are those who are hungry and thirsty. But, you know, there's a sense in which that breaks down as well. But there's, in the Beatitudes, there, there, there is this deliberate paradox in which he's describing these character qualities that you wouldn't necessarily associate with happiness or success or congratulations, and yet saying these are the very qualities of the kingdom. These are the values of the kingdom. What does blessedness mean? It, you know, from the Bible's perspective, the blessing of God is what everybody is looking for. Some people don't believe in God. Some people don't want God. Some people aren't following God. But at the end of the day, what everybody's looking for is the blessing of God. Some, most of us are looking for it in the wrong place. But that's what we're built for. That's what we're designed for. And that's what we really, really need. And so, you know, I mean, uh, the, the summary of it to me is, is the benediction in Numbers chapter 7. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and be gracious to you. Uh, you know, that, that idea that, that God is with you, that God is, sees you, that God has his hand on your life, that's the blessing that, that we're all looking at. What is the essence of the picture of heaven that, that we have in the book of Revelation? It says in the book of Revelation, the Lord is there. That's what makes heaven heaven. The Lord is there. So, so here it gives us this picture of the, the blessed life, and it's somewhat paradoxical. That's why it's so confusing to us, because it's not what modern Americans or modern people in general would associate with what a blessed life looks like. And that's because when a new kingdom is established, when you move from one kingdom to another, you've got to be aware of the values you took for granted in one kingdom, and then also what the new values are in the other kingdom. And for a lot of people in this world, uh, one of your skill levels is being able to move from one kingdom to another, from one culture to another, from one set of values to another. I mean, imagine this, you know, imagine you get on a plane in New York City in 
August and you're dressed, uh, you know, especially as a woman, maybe dressed completely in an appropriate way for uh, New York City in August, you know, a casual summer clothing. And you stay on plane after plane after plane until you land in uh, Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And then you're just so glad to be back, to be to have arrived at your destination and you run out of the airport in the same outfit you were wearing in New York City. And all of a sudden, you'd get arrested because you're in a different kingdom. You're in a place with different values and you can't dress the same way uh, in the capital of Saudi Arabia as you dress in New York City because there are different rules that apply. And it's the same when the kingdom of God comes, we've got to be aware of the new values of the kingdom of God to understand what true blessing really is. When we move from one administration, from one culture, from one kingdom to the other, you have to adopt your life to understand how these different cultures work. And so, so what Jesus does right here at the, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is he gives us a picture of the values of how the members of the kingdom, the citizens of the kingdom, are going to look and going to act and going to feel when they're operating in, on this earth. And, and, and that's why they seem paradoxical, because it's a different kingdom. And so let, let's go through these from the bottom to the top. Uh, first, he says, blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is one of the most enigmatic ones. Uh, you know, it's... You'll notice it's present tense here. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not some future hope, but right here, right now, those who are persecuted are, are those who can hope for the kingdom of heaven or those who are possessing the kingdom of heaven. So what he's saying is you're blessed by God when you're cursed by other people. You're included in the kingdom of heaven when, when you're excluded from the society of people because that's how the kingdom of heaven works right here and right now. Because what, what he's saying is the real blessing for those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven doesn't come from other people. It comes from God himself. And, you know, that, that's, that's, that's hard to wrap our mind around because we humans are, are social creatures and all of us are looking for certain people who will affirm us, who will include us, who will who will not exclude us, but invite us into their fellowship, in, into their society. But here, Jesus says, real blessing, the blessing in the presence of the kingdom of God is sometimes going to involve being excluded and not being blessed by other people, but by being cursed by other people. So blessed are the persecutors. Excuse me, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he says, blessed are the peacemakers, you know, one of the high goals of, of the whole Bible is the advent of peace. You know, Jesus is called the Prince of Peace, and this, this idea in, in the Old Testament that carries through to the New Testament of shalom, of restoration, and of, you know, I, I picture it as, as being finally able to say, ah, I can relax now. You know, some of you are still waiting for that day. But, but he says it's, it's making peace that is, that is the highest goal in the, in the kingdom of heaven. And he says, blessed are the pure in heart, because in the kingdom of heaven, God looks at our heart. It says in the Old Testament, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at our heart. And it's those 
of a pure heart who will see God, who will be transformed. And, and you know, this is the mystery of the kingdom of heaven because we see people's outward appearance. We see what people do, and that's all we have to go on because that's all, all we can, all, all, all that's visible to us. But in the kingdom of heaven, it's all a matter of the heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And then blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And this, this is at the heart of what the kingdom of heaven is all about. Because, you know, the king came from heaven to earth. The king came to an earth that had rebelled against him and that had turned against him. But he came not to condemn, but to save. Not to judge, but to bring mercy. And the character and the quality and the essence of the kingdom of heaven is it's a kingdom of mercy. So blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And then he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Notice he doesn't say, blessed are the righteous. In fact, you know, this whole concept of, of a, a righteous life in the New Testament is, is, is kind of paradoxical. You know, the, the people who Jesus had the most issues with as he went through his ministry were those who fancied themselves to be righteous. One point, you know, Jesus, it, the, uh, Luke says to those who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. And so Jesus was, one of Jesus' main objectives was to correct the presumption of righteousness that other people held, not because it was unimportant, but because it was vitally important. And to be hungry and thirsty for righteousness is one of the characteristics of people who are in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and, and it's paradoxical in this sense, or sort in that, you know, if you, righteousness as the New Testament describes it, if you think you've attained it, you haven't. But if you're still hungry and thirsty for it, maybe you're beginning to experience it. So he says, blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Then, then he says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So Jesus is saying the true conquest of the globe is not going to happen to the aggressive and the arrogant, but it's going to be accomplished by those who are meek, by those who are humble, by those whom God can work through. And then we get to the real enigmas here. He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You know, happy are the sad. This is why I can't say blessedness and happiness are the same thing, because it's blessed are those who, who mourn. And, uh, you know, that's the paradox in this world, that, that we can be both blessed by God and brokenhearted at our own lives and our own circumstances at the same time. You can have a, a deep brokenness and yet a deep hope if you know the comfort of God in your life. You can deeply feel your own pain and your own loss and the pain and loss and suffering of others and simultaneously have a profound hope that God is going to make all things right. The advent of the kingdom of heaven doesn't doesn't withdraw us from our own pain, doesn't, doesn't isolate us from the pain of the world around us, it enables us to enter into that pain and enter into that brokenness and have hope at the same time. And then, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the one that's, that's kind of the biggest uh, paradox, because, you know, in the first century, among the, the, the 
people that Jesus ministered to. And today, the last kind of people who we tend to say are the blessed are those who are poor. But here Jesus says that the poor are, are you know, poverty of spirit is entry level to being, to being blessed. You know, you are blessed to the extent that you are poor. The power of God in your life is going to be there to the extent that you feel your desperation and your inability to exert your own power. And that's the place where God is going to touch you. The place where God is going to work in your life is the place where you feel the most desperate and the most poor. The place where you're going to know God's power in your life is a place where you feel the most helpless and to the end of yourself. And so that's the the upside-down kingdom that he describes. You know, what, what this tells us is that the exhibition of the power of God, heaven as a dynamic on this earth, it's going to come in the midst of our flaws. It's going to come through our brokenness. It's going to come through the struggles that we have that we bring to God. In fact, as I, I said the last couple weeks, the, the great struggles that our life throws at us are really the best opportunity for the child of God to experience the power of God. Uh, and, and, and that's the promise that he gives you. And, you know, I, I think as we look at our lives, sometimes you, you, you read something like this, and if life is going pretty well, you say, you say well, this isn't really what I want right now. You know, <laughs> this isn't what I'm looking for. I'm looking to make progress. I'm looking to move forward. But, you know, as life happens for all of us, we, we find ourselves in these circumstances where life becomes unmanageable, and that's the place where God is going to meet you. That's the place where you're going to know God's power in your life. And this is a principle that people have, have noticed is transferable in a lot of different areas. Some of you, I know, are familiar with the 12 steps, the recovery steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, you, know, you know how those start? And if you're not familiar with them, let me tell you how they start. It starts with, we admitted that we were powerless over our addiction and our lives had become unmanageable. See, the genius of the 12 steps, the, the reason those have become a, a powerful tool to help people work their way out of addiction is because they start not with saying, okay, now we're going to try really hard to conquer this. They start with us saying, now we're going to surrender ourselves to God and ask him to help us. And we're going to admit that we cannot conquer this. Because, see, it's, it's when we admit that we can't solve our problems, when we admit that we can't fix our issues, when we admit that we're facing problems that are beyond us to, to, to re redeem, that's when we begin to experience the power of God and the restoration of God in our life. Because, see, that's how the, the kingdom of God works. The power of God, the kingdom of God, the grace of God in your life and in our world, it flows through the incurable breaches. That's where we discover God's grace is sufficient. That's where we discover God's grace is working in ways we never could have imagined. And, you know, for, for Christians... This is the heart of the gospel because what the Bible says is that whether we feel it or not, whether we know it or not, whether we recognize it or not, my biggest problem and your biggest problem is a moral problem. And even though we might be better than 99% of the people we know, we don't measure up to the standard 
of, of God's holiness and God's grace and God's goodness. And so, so the heart of poverty of spirit is recognizing and accepting our moral poverty. The kingdom of heaven is for people who are morally bankrupt. The kingdom of heaven is for people who are spiritually bankrupt. The kingdom of heaven is people who realize they have no merit of their own to bring to God. And so they've come to a place where they're asking God for his grace, for his mercy, for forgiveness. And that's the, the heart of the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is populated by moral failures, by sinners who surrender. You know, one of the songs in the kingdom of heaven goes like this, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And there's a part of experiencing amazing grace that can't happen for any of us until we're willing to say more than being a victim, more than just struggling, more than being an overcomer, I am a wretch who needs grace. But the promise of the kingdom of heaven is that, or the good news is that we got a king who came not to condemn sinners, but to save sinners. And that's why the kingdom of heaven is a merciful place. Like he says, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy, because it's only those who know God's mercy in their personal life who can enter into the kingdom of heaven. But having known that, how can we not be merciful to the people who we interact with who are in need of mercy? And... And so, so that's where the power of God comes into all of our lives. And that's, and, and, uh, and that's why it's the poor in spirit who, who, who see the power of the kingdom at work in their lives. In Jesus' day, to be poor was synonymous with being a beggar. The poor were, were, were uh, not, not the working poor in Jesus' day, not, not people who who were on, on public assistance, but people who had to go out every day and ask people, ask people for their nickels and dimes. That's what being poor was. So to be poor in spirit is essentially to be someone who prays to God. Every time we pray, it's because we're poor in spirit, because we're recognizing our shortcomings, because we're recognizing we need help. And the reason you don't pray is not merely because you're undisciplined or unfocused or you keep forgetting, but the reason you don't pray is because you're not yet really poor in spirit because you think the problems you have and the issues you have and the challenges you're facing today are challenges that you're going to be able to solve in your own resources and you don't really need God's help. And, uh, and it's as we, as we grow in poverty of spirit by the grace of God that moves us closer to God as we come before God in prayer. And uh, so that's the heart of, the, of, of what the blessing is. Now, the nature of blessings, as the Bible describes them, is they're not, never something we earn or deserve or achieve. You'll notice that the Beatitudes aren't really parallel to the Ten Commandments. You know the Ten Commandments, they're all about rules that you follow, right? Do not... Uh, do not lie, do not commit adultery, don't steal, don't covet. They're just, just some rules that you can conform to. The Beatitudes aren't really, are, are not rules that you follow. They're not so much ethical as they are pictorial. They're descriptive of a certain kind of life that certain kind of people are going to 
going to live as the kingdom goes to work in their life. And, and the idea of a blessing is it's always a gift. It's not, it doesn't, and that, the, the idea of a blessing is it's something we receive as a gift. And, you know, one of the, the real heartbreaks of growing old is when gift giving comes around, you realize that gifts are expensive, right? Because when you're a kid, gifts are just something you receive and it's just, uh, you know, they, they just happen. But then you get a little older and you're like, well, I'd like to get these gifts, but, but gifts are costly. You've got to save up. You know, it's only three months till Christmas, so you guys have got to start uh, getting ready for that. Because uh, gifts are free to the recipient because they're costly to the giver, right? That's the very nature of gifts. And what the Bible says is, is the gift of God's blessing, the, the bestowal of God's blessing on God's children is only possible because the king came and took the curse upon himself. The king came and purchased that blessing by absorbing the curse in our place. Look at Galatians 3.13. It's on, Alan, if you could pop that up there. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come. What was the work of Christ? Christ came to bring the blessing to earth, but what did he have to do to do that? He had to bear the curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus came to bless us, to bring heaven down, but to do that, he had to be willing to engage in mortal combat and ultimately to take the curse so that you can know the the blessing. And to become a believer is simply this. The heart of the Christian faith, if I had to put it in a nutshell, is simply this, is to recognize that the blessing of God is what you really need. You want the blessing of your boss or the blessing of a family member. You want the blessing of having lots of money or good health. But the blessing that you really need is the blessing of God himself. And that blessing that you really need is not something you can earn. It's not something you can deserve. It's not something you can achieve. It's simply something you must receive as a free gift. And if you receive it as a free gift, then it is yours. It's a free gift that was expensive because it was purchased by the, by the, the life and death and resurrection of the King of the kingdom, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's how you become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You know, he says here, blessed are the poor in spirit because one day... Off in the future, the kingdom of heaven is going to be theirs. Is that what it says? Somebody look at it and tell me. Blessed are the poor in spirit for one day. What, what does it say? Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Oh, thank you for showing that to me. Okay, so see, it says, says poverty, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, the presence of the kingdom of heaven, the, the dynamics of the kingdom of heaven, the grace of the kingdom of heaven, the blessings of the kingdom of heaven are yours even here, even now, even in the midst of your poverty of spirit, even in the midst of all the difficulties you've, you face. And that's, that's the paradox of the Christian life. Even as we're already already experienced these blessings, we, we are not yet experiencing the, the fullness of them. 
and so we continue to have the challenges we have, have. But it's also how we grow and how we progress in the Christian life. It's how you experience God's power. You know, I, I look at, out at all you uh, beautiful, successful, accomplished people, and uh, you know, I, think, I think to myself, well, I wonder how this is uh, applying to all of, all of you folks. But uh, here's the reality. In our lives, the place where we're really going to experience God's blessing and God's power, not just to become a citizen of heaven, but also to grow in that dynamic, is going to be right at the place where we feel the most poor. It's going to be right as we confront the things in our life that make us mourn. It's going to be right at the place where we feel our own hunger, our own lack. It's going to be right in the midst of the places where we're being cursed by other people, where we're being persecuted, where life isn't being Feel, where life doesn't feel fair and we feel excluded. That's where the blessing comes. You know, you don't have to go seeking this. It comes to you in those places because as you feel poor, then you pray and then you experience the presence of God. As you, as you feel persecuted, then you look up and you experience the grace of God and the affirmation of God in your life. And God's power continues in your life in the very places where you're the most broken, where you're the most weak, where you're the most out of control. That's where God's power and God's grace will come and work in your life. And, uh, you know, I think here's the thing. All of us were naturally built, regardless of where we are in life, we're naturally built to want to handle our problems on our own. We're naturally built to want to handle our issues on our own and in our own strength and through our own power. But, uh, but what God does to bring us back to himself is he reminds us of our weakness. He reminds us of our limits. He reminds us of our, of our shortcomings. So we'll go back to him. And he looks, he sends us these curveballs in life that look, look like disasters to those who are outside of the kingdom, but it's actually God's way of showing you that he is sufficient. I mean, my favorite story of this in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul. You know the Apostle Paul, you've heard of him. He wrote Romans and 1 Corinthians and places like that. And so he was pretty accomplished. You know, he, he planted churches all throughout the known world, the, the Roman Empire at the time. And, and wrote about a third of the New Testament. So, so the guy did a lot, had a lot of laurels to rest on, you could say. But it says that God was a little worried about the Apostle Paul, uh, that he was getting a little arrogant. So it says, he, he, he shares the story in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, God looked at, looked at me and, and to keep me from becoming conceited, Paul said, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to, to torment me. And then Paul says he pleaded and he pleaded and he pleaded with God to take this, this torment away, to take this brokenness away, to take this burden away. We don't even know what it is, which makes it better because it makes it universally applicable. But Paul pleaded with God to take, to relieve his pain, to resolve his pain, to, to, to solve this problem. And you know what God said to him? No, Paul, through this problem, through this disability, through this agony that you're going to carry with you every day of your life, you're going to discover that my grace is sufficient. And Paul said, that's not the answer I was looking for. But Paul continued to struggle with that, continued to deal with that, but then he had a breakthrough. 
And he said, Paul says, that's why for Christ's sake I've learned to delight in my weakness. I've learned to delight in insults. I've learned to delight in hardships and persecutions and in difficulties because I have learned that when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. That's the heart of the paradox of the kingdom life. That's the heart of the paradox of the Christian life. That's the heart of the paradox of the life of Christ. When he was the weakest, he was in the midst of hanging on that cross. He was his strongest. He was in the midst of of conquering sin and death and Satan for all eternity. And God is working in you through your struggles, through your challenges, through the daunting tasks that you face this month and this year, however they come. He's working through these to bring you into the kingdom of heaven. If you'll go as one who's following Christ and you can affirm what Paul himself said, when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the King who came into the kingdom, our Lord Jesus Christ. And I I just thank you that he was willing to become weak, that through him we might know true strength, that he was willing to become poor, that through him we might know true riches. I thank you that he was willing to be meek in the face of his adversaries, that through his meekness he might inherit the earth, that he was willing to be excluded, that we might be ultimately blessed and included in the kingdom of heaven. Father, I pray for for those who are here today who are facing unbearable difficulties, unmanageable problems. You know who they they are, and they know who they are, but I pray that you would give them the hope that comes, a hope that comes from knowing that when we are weak, in the things of this world, then we, we can become strength, strong in your grace. When we are poor in spirit, we experience your blessing. Make that real to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're going to